Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I am hoping that Kate joins us, and I think here she is, right on time. Hi, this is Kate Hensler, (laughs) developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Laura? (laughs) My clock said 5.58, not at 6 o'clock. I know, I don't... Uh, sometimes I'll get on and think I have five minutes, and it'll say one minute until showtime, and I'm thinking, oh, It really oh, is early. No. I mean, all kidding aside, I know it cut it close, but it is just a couple minutes early. But, you know, Well, you were doing is, birthday party celebrations at your house, huh? It's Laura's oh, birthday well, today. She, Laura's in Bloomington, so. Oh, I, did, I didn't know if you did a family thing this weekend or not. No, she stayed in Bloomington and had a good time. Thank you very much. Well, oh. there you go. Less trouble yeah. for you, huh? Yes, it was. She was home last weekend, so I gave her the, her, her big present early, and she th- thought about coming home but decided just to stay there and have fun. So. Well, then she's had birth week, so that's very yeah, good. She has. Her Facebook said five days of partying for her birthday. I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you wish you were blocked from those. Uh, oh, days, to be huh? 22 again, yes. Mm-hmm. Definitely made oh, the most of it. So exciting. Well, good for her. Well, happy birthday to you then, the day you, well, day you gave birth. So Yes, yes. Good, good, good. All right, tonight's show is number 143. I always remind myself to say the number, and I nearly always forget. And tonight we're doing the show that we intended to do last week. Remember last week we had that fabulous caller, Jane, who's called before. This is her third call, and she surprised us with a call to give us an update to say that her son was better and that she had had so much success incorporating a lot of the strategies that we recommended the first two times that we spoke with her. And so it was so nice to hear her and hear the update. But because we talked with her, we did not do our intended topic. And we we were we're still, tonight we're finishing up the article called Resolutions for Therapists Who Work with Young Children. And this is on my website at teachmetotalk.com. And you can find the full post there. But the thing that we're going to talk about tonight could be a little controversial for some people, especially if you are a real uh, rule-oriented by the book. Um, I'm not going. I'm going to just do exactly what the regulations say kind of therapist in early intervention programs and state programs because now the the model for lots of state programs is the primary service provider model meaning that one therapist is supposed to be the main liaison to a family and you're supposed to help a family learn how to incorporate every domain or every developmental area into a child's um, daily routine and we know in Uh, the perfect world, that would mesh beautifully, and that's the ideal. And remember, that's all these programs and all these treatment models and all of this, when, when research and experts sometimes publish these things, I think it is with that 
overall perfect scenario, kind of the, the ideal situation would be this, meaning that we all know enough about development to be able to provide recommendations to parents across the board. And that certainly is true when we're talking about generalities. However, some therapists, and we really noticed this a lot on the shows toward the end of the year, didn't we, Kate? Because this is why we sort of started talking about this and thinking about this. Because I got several emails on the website, and we had several callers like the last half of the year last year, which were wonderful, but a lot of times the therapists spend a lot of time giving us so much history with, you know, complicated medical history, a complicated kind of social environment with, um, you know, the the just tons and tons of details. And so many times when we have that much information about a kid, it does help you know where the child is coming from and all the challenges that a child faces but sometimes you can get lost in all that information and I certainly have had children that I felt like that with haven't you Kate I have I have one on my caseload right now that kind of falls into that category or could Mm -hmm. yeah yeah could because you don't Mm -hmm. really do this anymore do you (laughs) you may not have done it at all but here's my point I think that sometimes in early intervention, it is okay for a therapist to have tunnel vision with helping a family and thinking, what can I do to be of most help to this family? What long-term can I do here in my short blip of time in this kid's life, if you're looking at the whole course of his life, and even right now, all the hours in a week, versus that one hour that you're there. And sometimes, because we therapists tend to have kind of the social worker personality (laughs) mentality too, we try to take on all the different roles and all the different play, all the different pieces. And again, I think sometimes our, our models, our service delivery models have changed so that children aren't, especially in our state, don't get to see the number of disciplines or the number of professionals that they could have in years past. And so we all feel like we're we're trying to take on more roles. But sometimes your primary role, the main reason that you're there, gets lost in the shuffle. And so instead of doing what you could do, in which most of our audience um, that are therapists are speech-language pathologists and developmental interventionists, developmental therapists, education folks like Kate, we lose sight of what our primary goal is. We're trying to do all these other things that sometimes are even outside the scope of our practice, and it almost distracts you and keeps you from doing the very real good that you could do or being as efficient and successful as you could be because you're distracted by all of these other variables and all of these other things that, truth be told, you can't really change. Lots of times I think therapists and parents do this too, get so wrapped up in finding a diagnosis or finding a reason why a child is behind that they forget that the most important part is really treatment. And it's working to find strategies and solutions that work for the child to make the child better, not spending lots of time and energy, and in some cases for parents, money on finding a real specific diagnosis because sometimes 
you don't ever find that. It doesn't matter how many different specialists you go to or evaluations you have. Sometimes it's, it muddies the picture even more, muddies the waters even more, because you get, you might see five different people and end up with five different diagnoses. And so when we concentrate on on evaluation or assessment or diagnostics rather than intervention, lots of things can go wrong, meaning that you spin your wheels a little bit too much, you don't really, really focus on on intervention or really, really focus on the change that you you could make in that time. Uh, you want to chime in here, Kate? I need a drink of water. Oh, I was going to ask you to read the actual uh, um, 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 resolution, what, how it read. Yeah, it says, I will develop tunnel vision when needed to decide how I can best help my client and family. And the reason that we said that is because, again, we were getting, and again, um, I wrote these resolutions at the end of last year, and we just had talked about in the previous three, four, five months of all the callers that we had had or all the emails that we had filtered through, and we were talking about how much time a therapist would spend. And this isn't just one particular person. I mean, this was a trend <laughs> uh, talking about all the different diagnoses that a kid had and would just really give so much background and hardly talk about where a kid was was functioning expressively and receptively or noting lots of different things that when it all come when all those things come together when it comes down to it may not really matter in the big picture and I'm talking about I'm not talking about big things like diagnoses that we know affect communication skills. I'm talking about when you get all of these little, well, he has eczema and a history of constipation and he's a picky eater and the mom has um, advanced maternal age and he's the fifth child and, you know, all of these (laughs) (laughs) extraneous factors that do matter Kind (laughs) of, but what will that change about your treatment? And a lot of times the answer is nothing. All of those things aren't going to change what you really, really implement when you're there and what you help that family implement. Now, again, I'm not saying that you don't ever want to consider these factors. I'm just saying that a lot of times I think, especially now, that lots of professionals spend too much time on factors that they can't really do anything about. Can the speech pathologist really do anything about treating all these medical conditions other than refer mom out or say this worked with my kid, you know, whatever. No, we don't prescribe medicine. We don't order tests, you know, as far as let's send him in for an MRI. We don't do that. We can make recommendations. But we don't really have any control or any, again, it's outside of our scope of practice beyond recommending that a parent follow through with that kind of thing. And a lot of times therapists really join in with moms with, oh, what could this be? And the the whole head scratching and the whole, oh, my goodness, I don't know what it is, I don't know what it is, I don't know what it is, when really even finding a diagnosis doesn't matter because we don't even treat a specific diagnosis. There is no treatment for Down syndrome. There is no treatment for 
autism or cerebral palsy or any other diagnosis that you would get other than you're looking at a kid's receptive and expressive language skills and you're looking at that kid with or without a diagnosis hopefully in the same way hopefully it's not the diagnosis that gets you on the right track to know what to do clinically you need to be looking at skills skills determine and 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 problems and issues determine what you do in treatment not a diagnosis and lots and lots and lots of parents and therapists miss that have you had that experience i certainly have and i will say probably i've gone to the other extreme as i've done this longer and longer i think i used to spend more time on that sort of focus earlier on I still sometimes find it interesting based on the diagnosis. And if a child has a specific diagnosis, I don't become an expert, but I do research it and, you know, what goes with it, what what does it look like, what, you know, it's interesting. And I think it's um, in our best interest and in the child's best interest for for therapists to have some awareness of that. um, And I do too. And we sometimes will say, oh, gosh, a kid of yours that we were talking about several weeks ago. Do you remember Mm -hmm. what I'm going to talk about when you Mm -hmm. said the kid had, I don't even remember what the specific issue was. Did the kid have kind of a, I forgot what the diagnosis was, and I said, Johnny's laughing at me now. I think it's called cranial stenosis. It's where the the skull fuses prematurely. And I just said to you, and you did not see this kid from the get go, so you didn't you didn't do the whole intake with really at the very beginning and in our state anymore we don't even do comprehensive evaluations as a part of our um normal procedure with families anymore. Someone's already done that. We get the kid and jump right in with therapy. So you didn't even go to this kid's initial meeting and things like that, right? right? He was a late right. a later I very much for hit you. the ground running. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you mentioned to me that diagnosis, and then I just, you know, these are the conversations that we have. I said, oh, my gosh, is, you know, is there any way that you know, you know, exactly where that was, what hemisphere, you know, is that left hemisphere, right hemisphere? And you said it's frontal lobe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Am I remembering this? And, you are. And you had, what I <laughs> And then you, we were talking about, you were talking about how this kid presents in therapy and that he has, you were saying that the previous person had worked a lot on, or maybe it was the speech pathologist who is working with him and you're still on the same team, that she was working a lot on, and again, I may be messing up these details. I probably should just let you relay this story. But she was, a lot of attention had been paid to his inattention and his ability to, his ability to want to play and want to stay with you and want to participate. And I said, well, gosh, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, frontal lobe, that really is where we have all that impulse control and and where all of those, uh, all of those attentional processes really begin. And so people, you know, kids, adults, anybody who has that kind of injury or that kind of um, neurological insult there is going to have problems with that. And so it just was interesting to us to kind of work backwards from not start with this is his diagnosis, so this is what we're going to see, but you saw what this kid looked like and then 
kind of traced it back to that diagnosis. So that is, and I'm not saying that we don't ever take into account a kid's history or diagnosis because goodness knows we have to. But if you spent a lot of time, and, and again, this is not necessarily relevant to this particular kid, but for any kid, if you spend a lot of treatment time helping or contributing to a parent's, uh, gosh, I don't even know how to say it without really being too blunt. If all you're going to do is wade through the what if, what if, what if, what if, you never really may get around to doing what you could improve, which is, and for this little guy's helping him learn how to play better and giving him a reason to learn how to pay attention and and making it fun enough so that it overcomes his natural tendency, which because of his diagnosis is going to be to be pretty um, difficult for him to attend and difficult for him to stay on one task. And and for him, it would be difficult for him not to be impulsive because he already has <laughs> that diagnosis that lets you know uh, neurologically there's some differences there. So I think in that case, it might have even been more helpful for you to see that little guy first and work with him first and then kind of consider what all the diagnoses were rather than kind of forming a preconceived opinion and I think that was your point that you were trying to make before I interjected with this long rambly thing is that sometimes you want to see the kid and want to see what he's doing and pay more attention to that than all of that other history stuff. Well, sometimes the diagnoses almost can. Sometimes they're certainly helpful in giving you some insight, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes I'm surprised by what a child is or isn't able to do having considered the diagnosis going in. You know what I mean? I think I started to say, as I've done it longer and longer, I kind of go right to the basics. How is he functioning? What's his play right. look like? How well can he attend to one thing? For how long? How social is he? Is he responsive to what I'm doing? Is he trying to imitate what I'm doing? How responsive to what I say is he? Is he? Does he seem to understand all those basic, basic, basic kind of prerequisite things for communication? And and I feel like I get a pretty good idea of where he is regardless of a diagnosis. Right. And that gives me a place to go, you know, I, I, based on those answers. I know pretty much how he's functioning, maybe not exactly. Maybe, you know, I wouldn't check right. off every box on the Hawaii Early Learning Profile, but I have a right. pretty good idea in a short amount of time, you know, this kid's with me. This kid, mm, we've got some work on the foundational stuff. He is really not responding to what I'm saying. He is really not socially responsive with me today he is really you know whatever i have and i may not have a clue what diagnosis if he has one i mean i look at that before i go in but sometimes it's it's almost separate from a diagnosis sometimes those that those diagnoses don't necessarily tell you much of anything or sometimes they even indicate that a kid should be functioning lower than he is and when you're there with him you think huh that's kind of surprising because he's doing better than I would have expected based on the diagnosis. I just think that um, I spend less time on that and I spend more time on what I'm actually able to observe and um, elicit from a kid and go from there. Because, I mean, I know 
at one point not too long ago, Laura, you were saying, we don't really treat autism or Down syndrome. Exactly. Or, you know, I mean, we, we treat those things I was just talking about, and I think that that gives me a much better idea of where the strengths are and where the weaknesses are and where the emphasis needs to be put. And it gives me a good thing to talk to the mom about so that she understands these are, regardless of any diagnosis or, you know, anything else going on, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I think it makes sense to focus on, and... I feel like that gives you your best shot for what's going to help that kid, regardless of the diagnosis. Regardless. And some, and your point is sometimes in spite of the diagnosis, right. because goodness knows I've had children that you think, oh, my goodness, there's no way that she can have Down syndrome and be 27 months old and know 75 signs already. But guess what? I had a little girl like that last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, those things happen. And so if you if you let a diagnosis shape your treatment plan or shape your your goals or shape your opinion of a kid, sometimes you can really mess up either way with really underestimate his, yeah. his capabilities or mm-hmm. maybe get um sidetracked on something that isn't necessarily a big concern or definitely it's easy sometimes depending on the parent's situation to get sucked into, mm, you know, and I get this. I totally understand this. There are parents out there whose kids don't have a diagnosis and they can sometimes get very, very, very concerned and and almost obsessive about they Mm -hmm. want it. If it were my kid, I would probably feel the exact same way. Unfortunately, a lot of times there really isn't a diagnosis to be made or it's going to be many years before a diagnosis is made. And, yeah, I mean, I make suggestions, but as often as not, a lot of times kids don't really get a diagnosis, at least before they're three. You know, they may see a neurologist, they may see a geneticist, they may have specific tests run, but I know people who have kids who were 8, 10, 12, who clearly have very significant developmental issues, no diagnosis, you know. Right. I mean, I think sometimes right. they don't really figure it out. And even right. if they do, it really doesn't change what that child's doing on that day, you know, whether exactly. it has a label or not. It just doesn't And that's really... what I tell parents. That's That's what I tell parents, and this is my takeaway message to therapists listening. When you have a parent who really is... And I I don't want to say concerned because concerned, you want them concerned. You want them looking. You want them thinking about it. But when when it's hyper-focused, when it changes to every waking minute instead of, and and again, when I say every waking minute, you know, I don't really mean that. It's not that a parent can be consumed with it or that's their whole life, although sometimes it appears to be. But when you have a parent that's like that, that it's just, I love how you said when you get sucked into that when you're when it's when it's draining all of your mental time and energy is focused on diagnostics. What I say to a parent is, how is that going to change what we do for him? You know, unless he can have surgery to fix it or take a pill to make it better, having a specific diagnosis. I don't know that that's ever been the case with a kid that I... Never. 
And see, it's and neurological. That, that's, that's what I mean. The answer. I mean that that's is, what I mean. Yeah. It's never the case. There is no surgery. That would, right. It's 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 that kind of question where a mom has to sit and really think. Well, gosh, they can't really go in and have a surgery to fix language delay. <laughs> there's not a surgery to fix. You know, there's not a pill to make autism go away. And so when a parent comes to that conclusion, and, yeah, it's kind of facetious when you're presenting it in that way, but sometimes you need to have those conversations so that a parent can go, oh, my gosh, you're right. My time and energy needs to be focused on intervention and on figuring out how to help him learn and how to help him communicate and how to help him, all those things that you talked about, respond to me better, how to help him play so that he wants to be with me so that eventually he learns what these words mean and so down the road he can talk. But until you get a parent kind of at that point where they're really having a long you know, taking a long look in the mirror and saying, what am I doing here? If Even if I find an answer today, will that change what we do tomorrow? And, you know, 99.99999% of the time with us as education people and speech-language pathologists, the answer is no, There, there's not, that diagnosis is really not going to change. And really the truth is if you're doing a good job clinically, a diagnosis won't change your treatment strategies. It won't change because you already know what his communication issues are or his cognitive issues or his social issues. You already know because you've spent time with him and you've looked at what he truly can and can't do. And that really is where our focus needs to be, not on a specific diagnosis. And that's my whole point with that. And I love it when I do conferences and I say, do you treat autism? Do you treat Down syndrome? Do you treat cerebral palsy? And most of the heads in the audience are going, no. But I can usually see the person whose wheels are turning. And I say, no, you don't. You do not treat those things. <laughs> you treat receptive and expressive language. You treat social communication. You don't treat those specific diagnoses. But it's always interesting that one or two people are, are with me and kind of on that whole train of thought when we were – um, in Paducah a year and a half ago, or I guess, yes, about a year and a half ago, when I said that, a lady screamed, amen, from the back. And I thought, oh, she's Baptist like me, um, because she said, you know, w we don't really emphasize that enough. To And she supervised, she's worked in a hospital setting, and she supervised students all the time. And she said, I get them coming in, and they're always so focused on What's the diagnosis? What's the diagnosis? What's the diagnosis? She said she always wants to say, he's two. He doesn't have a diagnosis. He can't talk. That's it. That's all we got. Mm -hmm. And you can't get so sidetracked by searching down all those things because, like you said, a lot of times there is no specific diagnosis. You don't get one. Or even if there is, it just it shouldn't, if you're doing things properly from the get-go, it shouldn't change your course of treatment. You know, it right. still is what it is. And I think the most common one I see this with is autism. Right. Um, and I think not frequently, thankfully, but occasionally I've crossed paths or been on teams with therapists who get really, really uh, wrapped up, let's say, in I know he's autistic. He is autistic. 
And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, could and? be. And? And, you know, I mean, <laughs> and I What's think I was more yeah. that way when I was younger, you know, when it, when it was more novel and uh, anymore. It's like, and I'm not saying I don't ever go there. I do. But in the cases that stick in my mind anyway, it's been therapists who really almost get into a power struggle with the mother right. about trying to prove to her that he's right. autistic. And I've even been sucked into that sometimes on occasion. Me too, yeah. And I kind of will wait. I'll be honest. I say what I think, and usually the answer is I think it's highly probable that he is. You know, if you want mm-hmm. to diagnose this, you can go here or you can go here. I don't diagnose kids with autism, but... He certainly has some red flags. That's my usual thing. And then I let it go. You know, if she wants to pursue it, fine. If she doesn't, fine. It really doesn't change the child I'm working with. You know, there are some long-term benefits to a diagnosis, and I share that. But Reimbursement may be better if you have a diagnosis. A child may be eligible for a different class or a different frequency or level of services within the public school system. If there's school, a specific yeah. diagnosis, yeah, in, you know, we, from reimbursement, we're always talking about insurance with there, or there could be programming or additional funding services that could potentially in some parts of the country you could have access to if you had a diagnosis versus not a diagnosis. Children who were significantly impaired whose parents are going to go ahead and apply for SSI disability, you know, certainly they have to have a whole file folder of diagnostic information before a kid could qualify for that kind of uh, government assistance. So a diagnosis does help in in that sense, but it really, really, really shouldn't change what you're already doing for that kid because you've already looked at at where he is functionally. And I think it was easier for me to kind of get mixed up in that kind of stuff earlier in my career. And then, you know, all you have to have it do is go bad a few times before you start thinking, oh, boy, there must be a different way to do it because I'm not going down this road alone anymore. (laughs) Because, you know, just, just from a personal perspective, when you're the only person on the team, really, uh, you know, if the mom, especially in a situation where you feel adamantly that a kid is on the spectrum and the mom feels as adamantly that he's not and she's nowhere near ready to process that information, then it becomes such a tug of war with she almost wants to prove you wrong. And so then your whole time that you spend during that session, you're not really focused on helping the kid you're defending your position when you even if the mom is not saying <laughs> anything confrontational to you i think still a lot of us with these kind of personalities and again guilty i've done this you're thinking what can i say what can i say how am i going to explain this how can i word it so that she's going to get it and sometimes that does almost more harm than good because you're focused on something that you cannot change which is that mother's hope and prayer that her kid is not what you think. And can you really change that with a mom? Excuse me. Most of the time, no. And then you end up just, again, in a really uncomfortable position. And that's not to say, again, like you said, that you're not telling the truth and telling parents exactly what you think and making further recommendations. 
but I think you can get in that tug of war and in that power struggle, and it's it's not productive. And again, I know because I've done that. <laughs> I've and done I that with too, parents. And I think you, as yeah. you said, once you've been down that path a few times, yeah. you kind of learn. It's right. not a healthy place to be, and it puts you right. in a in a negative position with the parent. Yeah. And 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 you know, at the end of the day, there is something. Uh, how would I put it? It's more comfortable for me if I think a child is autistic if the parent agrees. But right. But on the, that being said, I do respect a parent's right to disagree, to mm-hmm. choose to see it differently, even mm-hmm. to remain in denial. You know, and you know what I mean. Right. I just have come to a point where I think that's okay. Um, I think I think I'm right, but it doesn't really matter. I can help this kid do what I can help right. them do, whether he has a diagnosis or not. And right. probably someday she will come to terms with it. Somebody well, at some if, point will. Yeah. You know. If he's truly on the spectrum, you're not going to be the last person that says that to a mom. And that's what no. I always kind of come back to with, okay, I've introduced this. Mm-hmm. I've talked with her about it i've explained why and if they are really really not ready for that for whatever reason then they're just not ready and to make it about me and me being right professionally never turns out okay (laughs) you've got to make it right for the kid you know you've got to do think it tends to be younger therapists i don't want to generalize but those you know, well, that's just when as, I did at one it, point, when I was a younger therapist. <laughs> now I'm an older therapist, and I think you get a little yeah. uh, better sense of reason and, and appreciation yeah. for where parents are and, and letting maturity. it go. And, yes, yeah. I guess you get a little, or maybe you're just too darn tired to fight it anymore. I don't know, but I think it's maturity. I do. Where you just well, that's good. That's a good. I like that term. It's not old age. It's maturity. Right. Now I just think you know I'm maybe more comfortable with right what I know and what I don't know, and just yeah, more willing to say it and then let it go. And I do think I've seen it. With other people on teams where it does become, they're going to prove, you know, the other therapist is going to prove it to them, and they're kind of constantly bringing up things to prove it to the mom. And I think, well, that is really not a healthy relationship built here. And I get it, but I just think it's unfortunate, and they would be much better off, and the child would be better served if they really just focused. And I've said this both ways, whether the child gets a diagnosis or doesn't, Something like autism, as far as what we do, it really doesn't change. He still has the same strengths and weaknesses. It doesn't, there is certainly not one magic pill, as you say, to fix that. And so, you know, I've had so many parents who were devastated by the diagnosis once a kid finally gets it. And and I get that. I'm not saying I don't understand it, but really, it doesn't change anything. Or totally relieved, conversely, totally (laughs) relieved when a child doesn't get it. You know what I mean? I've had those cases, too. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's great, but he's still the same. He's still the same. He's still (laughs) struggling. And you're right, it can go either way, with sometimes parents being so upset about it. And you want to just kind of say, wait a minute, she's still the same sweet, loving 
darling little girl as she was and you know an hour before you got that diagnosis that or the parents who hear the other flip side that you just said where they're like, Phew, at least he's not autistic, and you go, whoa, 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 he still doesn't connect with people socially. He still doesn't understand very much. He still isn't using words functionally. Those problems didn't go away <laughs> just because he didn't get that big autism diagnosis here. So that's a that's a point well taken on either angle with that and as therapists we just have to meet parents where they are consider a child's history consider the diagnosis or what the diagnosis could be help a parent move down that road diagnostically but the very best thing you can do is is treat what you know fix what you can and and again when i say fix a lot of people take it you know take offense with that verb but help things get better with what you are an expert in, and that's treating cognitive, social, and language issues and speech issues. So you work on those things because that is what you do know, and that is what you are supposed to be an expert in and what you're supposed to be comfortable treating and, and all those other things. Again, make the referrals help pass them on to the next person. And, again, I think that's harder to do now than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago, don't you think? Because of the way our programs have changed, we can't refer. Or I, we can refer. Um, but we, a child may not necessarily, with the very same issues, very same profile, is not getting, a lot of times in our state, the same intensity of therapy, this, the, as many professionals are as involved and as much therapy time as as he would have 10 or 15 years ago. Right, which can be difficult, but it's the reality right. of the situation. And I will right. say I weigh more heavily what's that going to look like. I mean, I always think, well, can that person help him more than, than I can help him? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but... Because right. now it's it's more limited. You get X number of time. The total team the team gets a total number of uh, hours or minutes, however units, however you want to look at it per week, regardless of how delayed that child may be or what those issues are. You know, right. in the good old days they would get an hour a week, which for some kids was great and some kids was excessive and it varied. But now it doesn't right. really matter. They would get an hour a week with whatever service they needed. A kid could, Mm -hmm. I mean, in the past, a kid would get PT once a week, OT once a week, speech once a week, DI once a week. Then they might have gone to play group on top of that, you know. And then I think, oh, gosh, no wonder we've had state budget crises with our intervention program. But at the same time, even when that's happening with the family and you do see needs and you do see, gosh, this kid really does need to be in physical therapy, you don't withhold that information just because you think that the program is not going to pay for it. You still have to offer up your professional opinion and give families other ideas about where they can go to pursue treatment outside the program that you are functioning in. That's what a lot of school therapists will say to me. If the kid doesn't qualify for speech through our program, if he doesn't meet eligibility requirements, I can't really tell the mom she should still see somebody privately. And I say, why not? You know, eligibility cutoffs are completely different from 
this is where he's functioning. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people don't get that. They want to say if he's not eligible for services, that must mean he's typically developing or within normal limits. A lot of times, no, those kids are falling in that that gray area that they don't qualify for services. He can't be on your caseload, but, boy, he needs to be on somebody's caseload. And a lot of times therapists feel guilty about that, and they say, well, these parents can't pay for that. I don't, you know, well, that's not up to you to decide. (laughs) You have to still make your professional recommendation out as as your profession as a speech-language pathologist, not as an employee of whatever school district or whatever. You've still got to ethically tell a parent, listen, he doesn't meet eligibility requirements, but you may want to look at some additional community resources. And I think what's happened is a lot of program administrators have really scared therapists away from saying that and saying if you're saying he needs services that means we should have I we should see have why seen they him. would say that. Yeah, that's kind of I mean, I agree with you, but I can see why an administrator would say, "Oh no, you tell him he's doing great, he doesn't qualify because you don't want to give the message that he's not doing well, but he's not doing poorly enough for us to give him services." I mean, I can well, see why that. Well, I would be. love therapists who are able to walk the line and straddle the fence and still (laughs) make their bosses happy but tell parents the truth and Mm -hmm. and say it and I don't mean that they're lying when they don't do this I just mean to say it in a way that parents understand to say things like in all actuality according to our eligibility cutoffs according to our state guidelines or federal guidelines or whatever you want to use, we only really see children who function in the bottom first, second, and third percentiles. And your child is in the fourth percentile. He doesn't qualify for me, but gosh, look, look at where he's functioning. You know, this is a state-funded program. We can't treat everybody. We don't have, you know, you've heard on the news about all these budget crises. Even if you, you know, you can't do anything to change these cutoffs, but look at where he's functioning and, you know, make your decision based on that. And I I think most parents get that or understand that. And I understand the administrator's position, too. I've I've been the boss before in those kinds of situations. But you have to be able to explain things in a way that makes sense to parents. And the other thing is sometimes we do sell parents short with, well, I can't tell her that because there's no way this family can afford that. How do you know that grandma's not going to cough up the money? Or (laughs) they're going to figure out a way to get that service covered. They don't. You don't know. You can't make those decisions for parents. So you have to pass along that information. I've had people pay me private pay out of pocket for a long time when I would think, gosh, oh, I hope I'm not taking the grocery money here. You know, but <laughs> that's people make adjustments and make priorities, and it's not up to you to decide what a family's going to decide to do. I mean, that's it's their kid. So you have to provide the information so that they can make a good decision for their kids. Yeah. All right. Do you have any more that you want to add on that, Kate? I don't think so. I don't either. So we've talked about that, and now we finally are at the end of this. How many shows did it take us to get through this? Four, maybe? Four. 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 I think it was four. Well, we had our callers, though. We did, yeah. And so let's just do a little recap of this. 
the resolutions that we um, talked about, we talked about the whole month of January 2012 for therapists who work with young children. First of all, we're going to have fun in therapy sessions, and fun is more important than almost any other principle when you're working with very young children because if the kid doesn't want to be with you, You've got a big problem. <laughs> you have to be so enticing and so engaging and so different than other things in his environment that he's going to want to be with you. Because the more he wants to be with you, the more he can learn from you. And that, I think, is just the basic premise. And go back and listen to um, show number 140 if you want to hear more about having fun in therapy sessions and being playful. The second resolution was, I will be warm, affectionate, and approachable during sessions. And we talked about this and compared our position with any other trained professional out there that you might encounter. And we said, it doesn't matter if a person is a doctor or a waitress or a cashier at the grocery store. The people who are good at their jobs and friendly, easy to talk to, people that make you feel welcomed and important, those are always your favorite people to deal with. And we need to strive to be that way when we're working with families and kids, too. We want to make kids feel loved and, again, give them a reason to connect with us. Kate, are any of these that you want to sum up and jump in? You just cut me off and jump in, okay? I think you're doing a beautiful job. <laughs> Our third resolution was we are going to stop blaming parents for developmental issues. And boy, did we have a soapbox on this when we mm-hmm. talked about <laughs> really kind of taking a little bit of an attitude and saying, if this mom were going to do better with this, this kid would not struggle like he is. And we said the truth is that that child would have probably had those issues maybe in a little different spin or different form. But really what we deal with so much is just atypical development, you know, atypical neurological development. And so... Would the fact that if a parent, you know, parents can do certainly things that will make a child uh, move forward developmentally, but were they really the root of the problem most of the time in early intervention? That answer is no, unless it's a severe case of neglect or abuse or something that happened, you know, the mom drank her way through nine months of pregnancy. Other than those things, you can't really blame these issues that we're seeing on children, Uh, not on children, on parents. And so we talked about that and we talked about how meeting parents where they are and how just modeling and showing them different ways to do things will be more effective than being preachy or condescending or certainly um, meeting that family with already kind of a little professional attitude that um, you know what's better and you would have done a much better job. And we had some, we've had some discussions kind of off the air about <laughs> those kinds of things, Kate, where we might, where a therapist is kind of telling us that about a family that we might work with and we want to say, well, how's he doing for you in the hour? Are you able to get him to do it better than that poor mother? No, mm-hmm. that's why you're complaining. Uh-huh. You can't do it any better either. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we want to stop blaming parents for developmental issues. Can I move on? Sure. Yeah, and there we said, 
a big thing was that can't versus won't article, and that's on my website at teachmetotalk.com, and I've written about that, a big section about that in Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, if you want to find out more information about that. Today's principle was number five, or resolution. I will develop tunnel vision when it's needed to decide how I can best help my client and family, and we just know that that means we're not going to be so wrapped up in a diagnosis that we miss while we're there, and that if you were doing a good job clinically, it really doesn't matter what the diagnosis is because you are going to have identified ways that you can help the child with receptive and expressive uh, language, speech skills, cognition, social communication, whatever you're there to treat. You're going to look at those things and where a child is truly functioning uh, without becoming so wrapped up and sucked into things that you can't really change. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the the last resolution, which is I will work the hierarchy for treatment with toddlers. And we did this because the mom had called. And she, at the very beginning when she called us, she called us, this was her third call. And the first time she called us, she asked a lot about a kid's play, and his social connection, so we got to talk a lot about that. And that is the first piece in the hierarchy. And, Kate, you've already kind of referred to this informally as you were talking a minute ago, but we look at where a kid is functioning socially, how engaged he is, how responsive he is, how connected he is, and we treat that first. And then when we look beyond that, the next thing that we're carefully considering is a child's receptive language skills. And linked with receptive language is cognition. We know that until a child is developmentally ready to talk, he's not going to talk. So we have to get him there. And a big part of that is making sure he's met cognitive milestones and making sure that he's beginning to link meanings with words. Then we look at expressive language and where a child is able to communicate with gestures, with signs, with words. We look at that whole imitation hierarchy. If he's not imitating words, we back him up to the point that that we determine where imitation breaks down. If that's all the way back at the beginning, that he's not even imitating actions in play, that's where we start. And so we work through that whole thing. And then lastly, when we're looking at communication, that's when we focus on speech intelligibility. So when I say work the hierarchy for treatment with toddlers, that's what I'm talking about. And if this is your first show and you've never heard me refer to that before, (laughs) you can get more information about that from Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. There's a full explanation there and kind of walks you through what's important. Now, that book is written specifically for professionals. I know a lot of moms buy it, and they email me and say they like it. But I will just go ahead in the interest of full disclosure and share that it really, really is a book written for therapists. And you've read that book, Kate. What do you think about moms on your caseload? That's probably not appropriate for every mom that you might see. Certainly not every mom, but there are certainly moms out there who, you know, really embrace it and could could handle it. Uh, I yeah. would also add that there are some therapists who probably wouldn't get it. So. <laughs> there you go, keeping it real, aren't you? Yes, I'll just go on and say that. There are some that I'd like to email it to and have them read it, but um, I'm not sure they'd get it, so... Yeah, and so, and again, this is for, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that it's going to be appropriate for every single person. It's certainly not, but it really talks a lot about the philosophical things, and sometimes when we change how we think about things philosophically, your treatment approach changes too because you've, you've altered what's become important to you and you've altered 
what your real priorities are and what your real focus is. And so sometimes when you get the philosophy right, then other things fall into place. And we always talk about, I don't know that we've talked about science versus art in a while, but what we do really is part art and part science. The science part is in this book and that the goals are all there. It's written in terms of below 12 months, 12 to 24 months, 24 to 36 months, and 36 months to 48 months. And it, again, covers social stuff, cognitive stuff, extensive information about receptive and expressive language, extensive review of milestones and how to work toward those milestones, and homework to give parents when you're working on those milestones, and realistic activities. I mean, these are the tried and true. I am not um, an ivory tower kind of girl. It's not in the book unless I know that it works and that, that I've done it with more than one kid. So <laughs> that information is there. And, again, the other part of what we do is the art part where it's just, again, changing your philosophy, honing your instincts and getting getting you a little more intuitive with why things would work versus why things wouldn't work. And, again, I think it's what helps you put it all together and um, – really develop your own sense of style and your own confidence with treating kids and that you know why you're working on what you're working on and that so that it all makes sense to you and so that you can explain it in a way that it makes sense to parents. And I've had therapists tell me, I, I, I read your part of this book and then I went in and said to mom, I just pretty much quoted the book and that was good for me because I didn't really know how to explain it before and so if you need some help with that kind of thing that would be a great um, resource for for you to look at so that the treatment hierarchy is explained in there I've had therapists email me before and say I don't understand what you're talking about so that's one of the reasons that I did that therapy manual so that there would be a point of reference there I kind of wish we had made one that said I will not be lazy and choose not to take toys. <laughs> well, Kate, you I have just, seven minutes to talk about that. Just go for it. Here you go. Uh, that should have been our number Kate's seven. Uh, oh, you know, that's a pet peeve of mine, and I think you share my sentiments on that. I hear I do, that a yeah. lot. Um, you know, and my experience is, and, and they have some support because we have been told by the state that we really shouldn't take toys, and you always say, I'll be the last one dragging my toys. You and me will be the last <laughs> ones dragging our big old bag of toys into houses. My experience is that even in those cases, now I go to all you know, socioeconomic levels. I go to places where they have basically no toys, or it's so junky that you could never You really do. You have you- a vast variety. I see it all. I mean, I go You go, go everywhere. Yeah. Nice big fancy houses where they have every toy known to man and I go to trailers that it, you know, it looks like they're going to condemn it while I'm there. So, I right. see it all. And my experience is that it really pretty much universally it doesn't even matter what they have. What we take in is novel. We right. tend to have things that we have um, you know, tried we know in the we're winners. Yes, we take our standard things and, you know, we'll pull a few other ones for various kids. But And they don't tend to be things that most kids have. Occasionally a kid will have something that I take in, but a lot of times not. And uh, funny, it doesn't even matter. Sometimes you take in things that they have, right. and yet they'll show all kinds of interest with you as you're doing it. But the mom says, he never even looks at that. 
and there's just something inherently exciting about somebody walking in a little kid's house with a bag of toys and kids rise to that occasion and really are inspired by that and so it works. It's the whole Santa Claus principle. It is. I mean you go in there and you say, Let's play and they're like, Cool. Um and I hear a lot of therapists not doing that or some therapists right. and those almost um without exception are the therapists that the mom says, He really doesn't like her very much. He really doesn't pay any attention when she's here. He runs to the other room or he cries or he blows her off in some fashion and I, I and even with kids that I would say are relatively easy that I work with um I I still am thinking what am I going to take today that's going to get them what right. what what can I pull that's different to encourage sure. them to be just a little more enthusiastic about this living it up yeah right and that doesn't I, I and I just think that should be one of our resolutions that people should not use that. And I get it, my car is full of toys. Um it's you know, a pain. It would be really nice not to deal with that. But as you say in your conferences, Laura, that those are the tools of our trade. That's that's yeah. what we work with. Mm-hmm. And to just say, Well, I'm not supposed to do that and not do it. Um, I think is uh, certainly not in the child's best interest. Yeah, and, and this is, I think it makes it a lot harder. I mean, I think oh. a lot of times therapists think that it's easy not to do it because, you, and they do kind of go with, well, my program says not to do it. I mean, I get an e- I get at least one email a week about this, and this has been, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's a lot more than that, and boy, is this a hot topic in conferences. A lot of people want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of state programs do, are saying it's better for the child's natural environment, and there's the reason, the rationale is you want to show parents how to do what you do when you're not there, and I get that. And, again, this is what I said at the beginning of the show. Sometimes, well, n- nearly all of the time, when when researchers or when, um, this, when programs are making these grandiose statements, they really are thinking about ideal situations. And, ideally, you would go into homes where you had enough material to be able to work to show parents things that, that work, but in reality, sometimes you go and kids don't have anything for you to use, and then I feel like you're wasting an hour of your time, the kids' time, the parents' time, everything. And I think it's too hard in this situation because you're having to think. You're either having to think on your feet and really thinking, what can I do here? What's productive? Blah blah blah. Or you're just punching the time clock and just getting right. through your hour, which is kind and of that's what, what you're I referring see a lot. to. Yeah. They're just kind yeah. of going through the motions. They don't seem to really care how it went. You're phoning you know, it still in. still got yeah. paid the same amount. And I think, you know, you'd be so much more fulfilled and happy with your day if you would just put a little more into it so you could get a lot more out of it. Right. Um, but anyway, so that's my addition. Don't use that as an excuse to not bother to take cool, and I don't mean one little simple toy. Stack the ring for a three-year-old, yeah. That, that you've been taken for six months, and I mean, I'm saying that as a joke, but I have literally been on teams where that's the case. 
And the mom says, he doesn't care at all when she's here. He doesn't pay any attention. And I say, well, what toys does she bring? Well, she brings that same little Elmo toy that she's been bringing for six months. And a And puzzle. I think, well, <laughs> huh? What did you say? And a puzzle. And the same and puzzle. puzzle. Yeah, one puzzle. Yeah, flashcards and a coloring book. I mean, it's like, and what else? Anyway, I think it's sad when that's the case. I think it just screams, I don't really care about my yeah. job. And, yeah. you know, our job is um, little kids, and we're supposed to really care. And if we don't, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. I totally, yeah. totally, totally agree with that. And I think, too, I mean, I say in the conferences because it's, you know, a different audience, and I feel like, you know, people have paid to be there, so I can kind of be a little more blunt and say, I think, you know, don't take the lazy way out. And when I say that, people are, you know, they're really offended sometimes. And they say, I only don't do it because I'm supposed to be, you know, doing the natural environment and I'm I'm supposed to be following the rules and following the guidelines. And I, my boss told me I can't. And I always say, you, you are a professional. You are expected to show up prepared. You are expected to have a plan and to go in and not have any of that really speaks to who you are at your core. Mm-hmm. And... And you gotta you gotta address that. And sometimes instead of sometimes to make changes, you gotta buck the system. And you just have to say, these are my tools, and I'm taking them. And here's why. And I, you know, and the whole natural environment thing. When you're playing with a kid, don't you naturally talk to parents as you're doing it, Kate? I mean, I feel like I do family education from the time I hit the door till the time I leave. And I say to parents, you know, I'm doing this with this toy, but look, you have this and you have this and you have this. And you can do the same kind of activity with your materials, and here's how. Or on your homework sheet, you're saying, you know, today he used these signs with me when we played with this toy. Let's brainstorm together and come up with when he can use these signs with you with stuff that you already have. And if you're never showing a parent a better way to do it, then why are you there? Why are you even wasting your time getting up? You know, it's they could read a book. If that's all you're going to do, heck, send them to my website. Again, you know, just kind of sit and talk with them and have a coat while you're there. If they're just going to read about it, you've got to show them. I got a, I know we're over right now, but I want to share this story. This week on the website, a therapist wrote on this resolutions article, um, I thought the IFSP was about showing families and telling them telling them the, the stuff that you're supposed to do all the whole rest of the time. Uh, I didn't think it was about working with the kids directly. And my response to that was how better <laughs> for them to know what you're going what you mean for them to do other than showing them. I don't know how else parents can truly be expected to do it other than if they see it. And I'm a firm believer in any time I can show a parent beyond telling them, they're going to retain that information better and they're go they have a much better shot of being able to carry over that same activity when they've watched you versus you just kind of sit and talk about them with it on the couch and then leave. And I don't feel like that's really I, I'm a therapist. I do therapy. And it doesn't really matter what setting I work in. 
that's my job is to do therapy. And if I have to, you know, dance around or whatever, whatever program issues, okay, whatever, I can do that. I'm talented. I can make that work. But at the same time, at my core, I'm, I know how to treat kids and extrapolate that to show parents, okay, this is how I did it today, and this is how you can do it. You watched me, and then this is how you take that information and use it the rest of the week. I don't think it's effective just to go in and talk to a parent and then leave. I'll never think that's a good way to spend spend money on well, therapy. Well, this other go thing is, is that even if you try and share that, I think with your particular approach, it's so helpful to see it right. because you can say what it is, and that's what kind of motivates you to make the DVDs. And right. Because be playful. Well, what does that really look like? You know what I mean? Right. Some people's interpretation of that is pretty different from right. what it would ideally be. And right. they actually see it they have a much better shot at at following through or at least coming close. And, right. you know, to just simply give them suggestions, as you said, a book would do it. You know, then see them every six months and make an hour's worth of suggestions because really the other thing is that so many of the kids we see, they don't, they're not predictable and their skills are significantly delayed enough that just trying a basic approach is probably not going to be effective. If it had been, we wouldn't be there. Exactly. You know, that's why it takes a master's degree. With their children, yeah. Right, and that's why it takes a master's degree to be a therapist. It's not yeah. something, I mean, they're, they, it's, the kid is hard. Like you said, or you wouldn't already, you wouldn't be there. He would not have qualified for services. Something has gone wrong, and so thinking that you're just going to be able to make it significantly better by making a few suggestions and then waving on your way out the door—that's crazy. And if you said that to a legislator, if legislators really knew that therapists were just going in and talking to moms, they would say, "We are not paying that amount of money for that. That is not a good use of state." taxpayers money they want to know that you are implementing something that that mom didn't already know how to do and so i think by just giving a lot of advice that i just i I will never think that's the way that we should be doing therapy when we're when we're paid to do it in someone's home for that one-on-one time and i mean would anybody even want that to be the choice i guess it would be the easy way out like we were talking about before and then that just gets to your character and who you are as a person (laughs) versus how you know you can be better and really show a parent how to do it and really teach a parent how to do it and again you know that's that's something you got to work out in your own mind I know what I'm good at and what I'm best at and what when when I'm most effective. I want parents to get their best bang for their buck or even if they're not paying for for me to be there. And and why would you want us why would you want to not provide that for people? Well, if they're not paying, that probably means we're paying. And I want you to do the therapy, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> I pay for you. To earn that so money. do it. You got to do it. Yeah, I hear that occasionally that parent, you know, oh, she just really talks. And sometimes it's not even related to the child. They just talk. I think, oh, boy. Yeah. That's a lot of and money to come in here and visit. 
With exactly, you, and that's and that's what I mean. Yeah. So when parents are, I mean, when therapists are holding on to the, if my state says I can't do it, I want to say, you call up your legislator and you tell him that you just go in and make some suggestions, and that what your the rate is. You see how how no, he wants you in there helping mm-hmm. moms figure out how to do it. Now, see the the reason that states have changed. It's because they just got people doing a lot of one-on-one therapy and no parent education. And then the parents didn't know what to do after the therapist left. And that that's just as bad. I mean, right. if, you're, if mom's taking a smoke break or a shower the whole time you're there, and, she, and, and in her mind she's looking at you like babysitting, you're not doing your job either. I mean, you've got to have both. You've well, got to have I think both. that, Laura, and it was also to legitimize cutting back hours. Let's be honest about that. How, how to embrace a cons- consultative model better than to give fewer am- less amount of time and say, right. well, you don't need three hours a week because that one person can do all that, you know. Right. Sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but it's also a yeah. reason to to cut back dollars. But yeah. in any case, a, co- a healthy combination of both is what makes exactly. the most sense. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Whew, that was good. Well, I'm glad we've gotten through this series, and I hope that there have been some things that have made you think about your job as an early intervention professional or as a parent about the kinds of services that you want your child to uh, have and encounter. So I hope it's been a, a nice series. Before we go, I do want to direct everyone's attention to TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page. If you have not liked that page, you should, because I always put things on there during the week that I think are um, time-worthy for therapists. This week, there was a really cute example of twin babies who are imitating their dad sneezing and I love this um, video because it so closely ties in to the project that I'm working on right now which is uh, how to build verbal imitation in toddlers so that was really relevant for me. There's a great thing about uh, why, what does television do to my kid's brain. There's a little 15 minute segment from a researcher who's a pediatrician and a dad. Really he's funny too. Mm. A, a clip on there, so take a look at that if anyone listening has not done that yet. Then um, I have taken questions that moms have sent me on TeachMeToTalk.com's website and linked the answer to articles that I've previously written, and those are kind of oldie but goodies that I've recircled or recycled. Uh, one is what can I help? what can I do to help my toddler learn more words and that's specifically for moms who are too focused on academic concepts and aren't really focusing on functional language and the other one is unproductive strategies for helping toddlers learn how to talk and that's our biggest don't do it that way list so um, take a look at those things there and I don't know what we're going to do next week Kate do you have any exciting uh, topics that you would like for us to uh, move toward I don't know that I do I'll have to be thinking about it, or just wait for you to tell me. <laughs> I do want to. I, I that wanna, usually works uh, really well. <laughs> You're so funny. If you have show topics that you would like for us to take a stab at over the next couple couple of months, please email those to me at laura at com. We love helping you solve your clinical dilemmas. That's one of our favorite things to do. And I think that we're going to revisit some of these things that uh, we've talked about in the past couple of weeks. I'd like to t- 
talk about that television stuff again, that we've got that great article to refer to. And then the article that my um, friend that I uh, got from her about eye contact and what works to help eye contact. I think next week we might combine those two topics and talk about both of those articles. So if I you are seen that, Laura, have you posted it anywhere? Or? Yeah, it's posted. It, there's a link to it. The easiest way would be to be on Facebook and then scroll down to the thing about eye contact, or okay. you could go straight to teachmeatotalk.com and look at it there. It's the fourth or fifth one down, I think. So okay. let's do that next week. We're going to talk about TV, and again, specifically about what we need to be talking to parents about with TV, other than saying, don't let your kid watch TV. We need to talk about why that's the American Academy of Pediatrics says no TV under two and limited TV all through the preschool years and how we talk to parents about that. And, and I know we've talked about this before, but, again, it keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about TV next week, and then we'll also do that article about eye contact. Kate, it's called, it's the one, two, three, fourth article down if you go to um, the homepage for teachmetotalk.com, and it's it's a word about eye contact. Okay. It's, it's, so we'll do that next week. That's our plan. Oh, you know what? It won't be next week because next Super week Bowl. is the Super Bowl, <laughs> and we're going to be off. So in two weeks, the second Sunday in February is when we'll have that show. I didn't know if we were off or not. I have to say the Super Bowl is not that big a deal in my world, but oh well. We can oh well, I'm going to be hosting a little family thing, so it is going to be a big deal to me, but we are off. Okay, cool. Talk <laughs> All to right, later. talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. 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 Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.